because kids have weekend sports. New service time on Sunday evening at 6 p.m. Starting September 8th at Stapleton Church. All right, welcome everyone. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Matt Wolf, and this is my amazingly beautiful wife, Melissa. She, yeah, yeah, welcome her. <laughs> She's joining me for this series for these four weeks, and after last week, people were like, sorry, Matt, you're going to lose your job. Um, so, <laughs> probably right, but I'm really glad that she's up here with me for this series. We have some special guests, Sawyer and Sarah Trapper back. They just had their baby. I, it's good to see them back in church with their little beautiful girl. Don't everybody swarm them at once today. Um, and I believe Turbulence is starting up again this Wednesday night, 6 to 8 p.m. So if you are a 7th or 12th grader or you know one, grab them and drag them here. Uh, it's awesome. Turbulence is great. And I think a week from Wednesday is their back-to-school bash. So that's really exciting for Turbulence. Also, you saw that advertisement for the night service. So even if your kids are in sports, you can be there Sunday night, 6 p.m. So a week from Sunday, so that, that's launching September 8th, but a week from today, on August 25th, we are kind of doing a dry run of our night service, meaning if you are interested in either volunteering or just making that service your service, we need about 50 people to say, hey, I'm going to commit to that service, I'm going to go three to six months to that service and make it mine. If you're interested in that, we ask you to come next Sunday night at 6 p.m. We're going to kind of have a fun little rally. We're going to have some food. It's going to be a good time. We're not actually going to have a service, but just kind of get an idea of what it's like to set up, and we're going to just practice it, right? So we ask you guys, if that's going to be your service, be here next Sunday night, August 25th at 6 p.m. Got it? Good. Okay. So we're going to be in our second week in our series called Redeemed, When All Seems Lost Through the Book of Ruth. Now, if you missed last week, that's okay. You can always catch up at stapletonchurch.com under the media tab. We have audio and video. You can even subscribe and get it sent straight to your phone, so you don't have to go to the website. But if you missed it, I'm going to catch you up a little bit because we are introduced to this story of two women, Naomi and Ruth, and things were really bleak for these women. It really did seem like all was lost. So if you missed it, we were introduced first to Naomi. And Naomi was married to a man named Elimelech, and they lived in Bethlehem in this town in the promised land in Israel. But everything started going bad. It was a time of famine, meaning there was literally no food. There was no food to eat, so the family had to do something. So Elimelech picked up his wife and two sons, and they moved to Moab. It wasn't very far away from Israel, but it was a completely different nation, worshipped a different god, a false god, not the god of Israel, away from God's people. And then things got even worse because Elimelech died. And then both of Naomi's sons died. So it was just left with Naomi and her two daughters-in-law because her sons had married Moabite women. So it was just these three women and everything was bad. They were hungry. They were hurting. They were broke. They had been there for about a decade. And they heard that things were turning around in Israel. There was food again. There was a harvest coming. So they packed up everything they had, which wasn't much, and they headed back to Bethlehem. And on the road, Naomi stopped them. So she's the mother-in-law and she says, okay, you women, to her daughter-in-laws, you go home. You're from Moab. You speak the language of Moab. You know the culture of marriage Moab. Just go back home. I don't have anything that I can give you. And Orpah, one of the daughter-in-laws, said, okay, I'm doing it. She goes home. But Ruth was there with the decision to make, and Ruth took a huge step of faith. She said, I'm going with you, Naomi. I don't know what's coming, 
but I'm going to trust that your God can help me. So she had this major, almost like conversion as she's coming to faith and saying, I'm going to go with Naomi. I'm going to go to the promised land and, and hopefully God can provide for me. It was the step of faith. And even in that, which was an amazing step of faith, Naomi and Ruth were dealing with a lot of baggage. They were really struggling because of the grief from losing their husbands. They were broke. They had nothing. They're these widows. And the two of them walked back into Bethlehem still carrying this. And, and we saw that Naomi kind of was taking on this, this identity uh, with this trial as her identity, she was like, my name is Bitter. <laughs> that's, just call me Bitter now because I'm a bitter old uh, mother-in-law, right? And that's who she was. She was struggling. She was suffering. But what we learned last week is God began to provide a little bit of hope because the harvest was just about the beginning. We, we learned that only God can bring you from bitter to better. That God can begin to take you out of that past that you've been carrying and weighing so heavily on you. You're, you're struggling, the grief, the burden. God can begin to take you out of that. So that's where we were last week, and now we're seeing that Ruth and Naomi are back in Bethlehem at the time of the harvest. This week, Matt and I were on a walk in our neighborhood with McKinley, and we ran into some neighbors that we hadn't seen in, like, probably three months. And I'm kind of like a walking pregnancy announcement right now. So. <laughs> um, she noticed, and I had the last time I had seen her, I had kind of shared a little bit about our story with infertility and loss. So, of course, she was like, whoa, what happened? And I told her we were pregnant with twins, and she was so surprised. And then she said, these things just have a way of working out, don't they? And gave me a, a big hug, and it was really celebratory and fun. But as I was walking away, I thought, you know, she's really just kind of seeing a snapshot of our story. The things have a way of working out part of our story. She doesn't see, she didn't get to see the eight years of infertility and the four miscarriages and the, all the stuff that we went through to get to this point. And it really reminded me of the book of Ruth. That's kind of how it is with this book. You know, you get five verses that tell what they went through for ten years, and then the rest is kind of like the snapshot of the good part. But as we study this scene today, I think it's really important to remember where these women are coming from and what they're carrying. And they, they would be coming into this town of Bethlehem with lots of doubt and fear and still definitely carrying grief. Yep. And for sure having lots of questions about whether or not God is going to provide for them and if he's good and how this is all going to work out. Because they, they can't see the end of the story like we can. That's right. And um, Naomi and Ruth, when they came carrying all this stuff, they did have a lot of questions. I'm sure they were wondering, where is God? Is he in control? Is he good? If he, if he is in control, did he make all this happen? Is he good? And those questions can really start to dog us when we're going through difficult times. Carolyn Custis James, in her uh, commentary on the book of Ruth, talks about that. And she says that suffering is a sacred meeting place between God and his child where faith is fighting to survive and God's goodness comes into question. And that really is what happens. We're questioning, is God good? Is he there? Does he care? Is he going to help me at all? Where is he? And those are the questions that these women are bringing with them back in Bethlehem. And this is, I think, some of the questions we carry with us. Some of you are even wondering about that right now. Is God good? Does he care? Does he love me? Because it doesn't seem like it. And what we're going to do in this chapter, we're going to see that those questions are getting answered. 
Those questions are going to get answered, and hopefully they'll get answered for you as well as we begin to see God's fingerprints all over this story. And hopefully through that, you'll begin to see them in your story as well. So if you have your Bible, open with me to Ruth chapter 2. We're going to start in chapter 2 today. You can follow along on the screen also in your smartphone or on your Bible. And we're going to look at verse 2. So Ruth chapter 2, verse 2. We read, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. What's going on? Okay, so the harvest is starting. This is the barley harvest, and then there's going to be the wheat harvest taking on after that. And what Ruth is asking to do is to go out so that she can go into the fields and pick up some grain so that they might eat. So God had established for the nation of Israel, his people, a law called the gleaning law. We often call it. So what would happen was when the harvesters would go out during harvest time is that the men would go out first with their sickles and they'd go through the, the barley, the wheat, and they'd, they'd do that, they'd cut it all down and then the women would kind of walk behind those men and gather up all the, the sheaves of grain and tie them together so that they could get carted off. Um, and then there was still some left in the field. You know, the first run through through the field, they didn't have great big $2.5 million harvesters or whatever, quarter million dollar harvesters like they do today, right? So there's not these huge combines out there. There's a lot left in the field, or at least some. So what would happen was God said, okay, now don't go back on a second run through. Don't go back. Leave that so that the poor, so that the widows, so that the immigrants can come through the fields and they will have something that they can take home and eat. This is God's way of providing for the marginalized, literally leaving the margins for the marginalized. And Ruth happened to be one of those poor widows who was an immigrant, right? So she's coming and she's thinking, maybe I can find a field where the people are going to follow God's law and I can get a little bit of food. This is basically the modern equivalent of dumpster diving. Think about it. You're going out there, it's working. You're having to put some work in and time into it to try to find some food. And you're just looking for the scraps so you can take home and eat that night. And this is what Ruth is asking you to do, and probably because Naomi's too old to go out and physically do that all day in the hot sun. So Ruth said, I'm just going to go out. I'm going to go randomly into some field. Hopefully I can get some food for us tonight. It says in verse 3, So Ruth went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So she just happens to enter the field. She doesn't know where she's going. She's never been to Israel before or been near this town of Bethlehem. She just happens to go into this field belonging to a man named Boaz, who is a very wealthy man, probably lots of field, a big business owner, right? He has a lot of wealth, and she goes into this field, and it also happens that Boaz is in the same clan as Elimelech, her father-in-law. She didn't know. She just walked into a field. And this distant relative of her father-in-law owns the field. Have you ever just, has it ever just turned out that you meet the right person at the right time? Has that ever happened to you? It's just like this chance encounter happens to be the person that you run into. That's what's going on here. As it turned out. Then in verse 4 we read, Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. So just then, right at the time when Ruth, this young widow, This immigrant who's never been to this town before, never been to this village, she walks into the field, and just then Boaz happens to be there and sees her. Just a coincidence, right? 
just then they just happen to meet the right person in the right place at the right time. I always say if I hadn't met Sunny Ben, she's a friend of mine from Nebraska, that I we probably wouldn't have had McKinley. When we moved there to Nebraska, we met David and Sunny, and um, they were on the same infertility journey as we were. She was just really brave, and I admired her so much for that. And she decided that it would be a good idea to come to a doctor here in Denver. And so some time passed, and we felt like God was really speaking through them, kind of prompting us to do the same thing. So we had to move to Nebraska to meet these friends so that we could come back to Denver to go to the doctor. And that's a picture of her two little boys and then McKinley. <laughs> yeah, and I think if we think about our own lives, if you think about your own lives, there's lots of times God uses people to lead you down a path that he wants you to go. Like maybe you meet somebody who helps you get a job, or and it's just the right thing. And that's definitely what Boaz was for Ruth. Just happened to meet the right person. Just happened to meet the right person. So when Boaz sees Ruth, he said, who's this woman? I've never seen her before. She likely was wearing black or sackcloth because she had been a recent widow. We don't know. But he recognizes her and says, I don't know her. I don't recognize her. So he asks this man, who is this? And they kind of tell the backstory. Well, you know, she's come from Moab. So Boaz approaches, approaches her and says, okay, my daughter, listen, you just stay in my field. You work in my field, and I'm going to tell all my men not to touch you, to protect you, to look out for you, to guard you. And on top of that, my men are bringing water from the well. Feel free to drink from it. So right off the bat, there is a lot of generosity and favor that Boaz is showing to Ruth. And we don't really think about it, but it probably would have been very dangerous for a young woman to be out in the field with all of the farmhands. And now she has protection from all of Boaz's men. And on top of that, she can get water from the well. Now, we just carry our Nalgene around with us, right? We don't think about having to go to a few miles, take a break from the middle of your work to go to the well, draw up the water, which would have weighed a lot, and then you'd have to carry the water back to the work site to drink it. I mean, that's a lot of work that's taking away from your time that you're just trying to get food to eat, right? And now she can just drink the water. Boaz is really watching out for her from the beginning. This is incredible. And in verse 10, it says, At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Why are you helping me? Why do you think? Do you think he was attracted to her? Or do you think it was something else? So that's the question. A lot of people look at this and they think, oh, romance. This has got to be a romance story right away. And it's possible when we get later on in the story, you're going to find a little bit more of that. But in this chapter, there's actually no indication that he was attracted to her. In fact, when he addresses Ruth, he calls her my daughter, which is the same address that um, Naomi had given to Ruth. So he's addressing her as a daughter, as a child, probably This means Boaz was older than she was. So he sees her as a daughter that he wants to take care of and protect, not as a romantic situation. He just says, I want to take care of you. In fact, he gives a little bit of his motive in verse 11 when he responds to her. We read, Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. 
how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz is saying, I've heard about you. I respect you. That's what he's saying. I respect you for what you did, and I want to take care of you and provide for you because of what you've done. So there's no indication right now that this is a romantic thing or an attraction thing. He's just wanting to provide for her. He's trying to show favor to her and be good to her. And, and, and he goes on to do this because right then, or maybe a little while later, he invites her to lunch. Come eat with me. And they cook a meal, and it's a warm meal. And she eats, Ruth eats with him, and it says she's satisfied and she has leftovers. Now, she's just come out of a famine. She's probably been having to just eat just a tiny little bit and portion it out, right? So now she's getting a warm meal and having leftovers, probably the first time in maybe a decade. This is incredible that she's having this meal. And then Boaz says, okay, I want you to stay in my fields. And then he goes to his workers and he tells them, he says, okay, when you go through and you're harvesting, leave some sheaves on the ground. Don't take all of them. Just kind of leave some bundles behind. So then Ruth goes through the fields. She spends that afternoon working, and it says at the end of it that she has an entire ephah of grain. You guys know about an ephah, right? <laughs> no, we don't know what that is. But an ephah probably was the equivalent of 29 pounds of grain. That's a lot. This would have been 15 times more than a man would bring home. Okay? This is a lot, a lot of grain. This is world record-setting grain harvest for this one because... The man had just kind of left it there on the ground. She picks it all up and she gets 29 pounds. This would have been enough food to feed her and Naomi at least a week and a half, perhaps months. It's a lot, a lot of food. I mean, she's going from, like, I thought I was dumpster diving, you know. <laughs> just hoping to get a leftover burger. Look at this. This is incredible. All this that has been provided to her. Yeah, it reminds me of the story in Matthew when Peter is fishing all night long and he doesn't have any success. And then Jesus comes and says, hey, let's try again. And that wasn't what they did because they had white nets and the fish wouldn't have been caught in the daytime. But he was like, okay. And then they caught two huge boatfuls enough to sink the boat. (laughs) Overabundant provision. Overabundant provision that Boaz is now providing. So what's going on right there? If you look back in verse 12, I want to show you this. When Boaz talks with her, before he shows like this abundant generosity, he says in verse 12, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So who's providing? Boaz is saying, God is being generous with you. He's providing all this stuff for you. But who's actually the one providing here? Well, isn't Boaz doing it? See, what's happening here is Boaz realizes, here's a poor young widow. She needs help. She's destitute. She knows no one. She's an immigrant. I am the way God is providing for her. So I am going to bless her. And that's why I think from Boaz here, we can learn that we need to be God's fingerprints. See, at this time, maybe Ruth didn't know what was going on, but all of a sudden, this blessing is coming in her life. There's this abundance for the first time in a decade. And Boaz realizes that he is the one that God is using to provide for her. You see that? So he says, I am God's hand. I am the one who can provide for this woman. And in the same way, I think we can learn from his example that we need to be God's fingerprints in somebody else's story to provide for them for what they need. 
this week, Melissa and I did travel back to Nebraska where that photo was taken um, because there was a woman in our uh, Nebraskan church that passed away this last week. And Nancy was an incredible woman. She was really God's fingerprints for so many people. The church was packed, um, hundreds and hundreds of people, and every single person there had a story about how Nancy had impacted their life. When we moved there, we didn't have any family in Nebraska, and she invited us over with her family. So she has a huge family, and she invites us over and a bunch of other people for holidays. You don't realize that when you're an out-of-towner, but everybody else has their family. But she invited us into her family. And I remember one Easter in particular, after church, there was a new family in our church that had no family in the area. I called her up and said, Nancy, there's this new family, some of our friends. Can they come over for lunch too? Like 15 minutes before, a family of four, Nancy said, sure, bring them over. She already has like 30 people at her house, but she just wanted to share her house and share her abundance with people. And she did. She was so generous. She invited people over for meals. She let people stay at her house when they were in need. She even had some rentals that she would let people stay in that were, could not afford very much for very low rent. She would have people over. One person told us at the funeral, this woman told us that when her own mom had died, Nancy would invite her out for lunch on the anniversary of her mom's death for five years after her mom died so they could have lunch together. I mean, I don't... Do we remember the death of somebody else's mom? You know, to remember that every year and, and just pour out some blessing on that person. This woman, Nancy, was so generous and she was God's fingerprints in a lot of people's lives in big ways and in small ways. Yeah, she gave me a pair of scissors once. <laughs> these are fabric scissors. I don't know if anybody knows about fabric. Does anybody know about fabrics? <laughs> you can only use them on fabric, and if you use them on anything else, you get in big trouble, I learned. <laughs> there was a group of women there that would get together to make prayer blankets for people, and every time I went, I would show up with paper scissors because I kept forgetting to buy fabric scissors, and it would just make a huge mess of things. And one day, Nancy showed up at my house with these fabric scissors and a little poem saying, make sure you don't use them on anything <laughs> but fabric. And it meant so much to me that she would remember that. It was such a little thing to do. But those are the scissors I made McKinley's baby blanket with. And they're also the scissors I used to make a prayer blanket for my own grandma when she was dying. And it, it turned into this like really meaningful thing to me, even though it was such a tiny thing that she did. Yeah, she touched so many people. And it was really God working through her. She was showing God's fingerprints to people. So we want to encourage you. How are you going to be God's fingerprints in somebody else's story? Maybe they're going to experience the goodness of God through you. Maybe it's some small thing even. Maybe it's buying someone coffee or taking them out for a warm meal or inviting them into your home giving them a place to stay in their basement when they're in need. There's lots of different little ways of buying someone scissors. You know, what little thing? If you see a need, can you step up and can you be God's fingerprints in someone else's life? So we're asking you, where, where are you going to be God's fingerprints in somebody else's story so that they, through their trial, can begin to see God's goodness at work? How will you be God's fingerprints in someone else's story? So we want to encourage you to think about that. And what happens is, is that Ruth now has 29 pounds of grain, right? 29 pounds of grain, and she's got to figure out what to do with it. <laughs> I just imagine this tiny little woman, weathered and exhausted from her hard day's labor, thinking, oh, now I have to do the whole trek back to Bethlehem carrying this huge load. But I think she would have been super happy 
and eager to see the look on Naomi's face. That's right. So when she gets back, Naomi is pretty surprised. Where did you get this? Who's taking care of you? She knew immediately, like, you're going to get 29 pounds of grain by yourself. Who's helping you out? She wants to know. And so Ruth tells Naomi all about Boaz and what had happened to her that day. And immediately in verse 20, Naomi responds, The Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Keep that phrase in mind. It's really important in this story, but we're not going to talk about it today, okay? But Boaz is not just a relative, but he is a guardian redeemer for the family. But we see here immediately that Naomi says, wow, praise God. God has not forgotten us. He's never forgotten to show his kindness. That word is the Hebrew word chesed, which is his loving kindness, his never-ending love for his people. And I think this is such a drastic change from what we saw last week, isn't it? Do you remember what Naomi said back in chapter 1, verse 20? When she first arrived in Bethlehem, she said, Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And now one day later, what does she say? The Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness. Do you see the change here? Because she immediately recognizes how what's happening here is that God is providing for Ruth and Naomi through Boaz. She immediately attributes this to God's goodness. She has learned and teaching Ruth, I think, in the process to see God's fingerprints. God's fingerprints are all over this and she sees it immediately. Wow, 29 pounds of grain. Where did you get that? Got to be from God. He hasn't stopped showing his kindness. Yeah, she's celebrating it in that moment. And I think in that moment, she was probably beginning to see that God had his fingerprints in a, in a lot of it. Like the fact that the harvest was starting when they moved back. And the fact that it, they could take advantage of the gleaning law. And just happened to be Boaz's field that Ruth showed up in. And then Boaz just happened to be super generous to her and taking care of her by giving her water and and having the men lay out sheets of grain and and providing her with protection <clears throat> definitely was a, t- a turning point for Naomi when she started noticing God's fingerprints in all those things. That's right. She began to see all of those things. In fact, Boaz would go on to say to Ruth, don't harvest in any other fields for the whole harvest. This is six to eight more weeks that you'll be provided for all this grain. I'm going to take care of you and watch out for you. So, so much generosity is coming their way, and they're beginning to see that this is from God. They're not just coincidences, right? So we too need to learn to see God's fingerprints in our own lives. So think about your story. Where has God been at work? I think about our story. When Melissa and I were first dating, we were uh, seniors at Colorado State University up in Fort Collins, and we were in that awkward dating phase. We were like, okay, we're both going to be moving soon, looking for careers. Where do we go? Do we go the same place? Like, you know, have you ever had that awkward moment? So we were trying to figure that out. And I was going to seminary, and she had just gotten her teaching degree. We were trying to figure it out. And it just so happened that Melissa's pastor from Utah 
whose son had gone to Denver Seminary and gotten a full tuition scholarship. So I heard about this scholarship through that connection, and I applied and got it. And then I needed a place to stay, and I had a friend of a friend who was on the board of an organization here. And uh, so I found this place in Cherry Hills Village, if you guys know the area, that I could live for $150 a month. Top that in Denver, right? Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, this is incredible. But then Melissa needed a job, so she was applying all over school districts in the entire state of Colorado, and she happened to get a job in Littleton. And when she accepted the job, we looked online on Google Maps, and it was just three miles, three miles from where I was going to be living. We're like, what the heck? (laughs) How did all these things work together? And it's just, when you see all those things come together, it's like, this is God's fingerprints on this story. Or I think of my own sister, Anna. Her husband's in the Air Force, and he was stationed here in Colorado at the Air Force Base for just a few years, right? But that was right when they had their son, Joshua, and they found out that he had a heart defect. We just happened to be by one of the best hospitals in Colorado, Children's Hospital, with one surgeon, one of the only surgeons in the entire country that could perform the surgery that Joshua would need when he was born. So he had those surgeries right away. And to this day, um, he's a healthy, strong, growing little boy. Um, and, it, you know, they've moved away since then with the Air Force, but they just happened to be here at the right time in the right place. It's incredible when you look at those and see God's fingerprints on the story. So we want to ask you, where are God's fingerprints on your story? How has God been at work? Is there that chance encounter, that person you just happened to meet that helped you get the job or get the place to live? Uh, or you met your spouse, you know, these chance encounters of things that seem random coincidence. It's not. It's God working the whole time, and we want to encourage you to look at your story. Where has God been at work? Even if it seems like a coincidence, it's not. It's not. I love thinking about Naomi when Ruth showed up with those 30 pounds of grain, you know, because she would have been still having all the same questions and everything. And for God to provide that much food in the middle of a famine would have meant more to her than most anything else, I think. And I think that her faith would have begun to turn around and she would have started to think of God again as good and helping her. And coming from lots of questions and heartbreak, uh, I just think that that would have been a real providential thing for her. That's right. So all these questions that these women have been dealing with, that we deal with in our life, is God good? Does he care? Does he love me? Is he even in control of the situation? Questions that these women were bringing into this chapter of the story, the chapter of their life. All of a sudden, they're seeing God's fingerprints everywhere. So here's the thing that we've got to realize is that God is in control, and we need to learn to have confidence in providence. To have confidence in providence. Have you guys heard that term before, providence? We don't use it much anymore. But the idea of providence is bringing those two ideas together, that God is in control, that he's sovereign. He's working in situations behind the scenes. There are no coincidences. That's his sovereignty. But it's also his goodness, that he provides, that he cares and he loves. And both of those things are wrapped together in the idea of providence. And we can trust God in that. We can have confidence in providence. God is good. He's working the whole time. Those are his fingerprints on this story. So we want to encourage you guys to do that in your own story to look for his providence. And it would have been these things, but it would have been so much more too. You know, we see some things with these fingerprints that we begin to investigate, but there's even things that we don't see, things that are behind the scenes. And I think even in this story, they probably didn't even think about it, but the fact that there was even a famine that made them go to Moab, 
was the situation that God used so that this young woman, Ruth, a Moabite, could leave her religion and move back to the people of God so that she could know God, be saved, and then she could end up having a child. And I I don't want to give away the story, but uh, that child would be the grandfather of King David, a king that would literally unite the nation and, and bring everyone together and bring them back to God. And from that king would one day come the king of kings, Jesus. And if the savior of the world could be brought through the messes of these two women's life and their tragedy, we know that God is working behind the scenes, even if we can't see the fingerprints. We know that God could use that mess to bring about Jesus, who would be the most generous person. He would be one way greater than Boaz because he did provide fish or when there was meals and he provided food for 4,000, there were still leftovers, right? God provided for them abundantly beyond and Jesus was even willing to die on the cross to save the world. And if God can bring about the salvation of everyone through this woman, Ruth, we know that he can work in our lives too. We can trust him to have confidence and we can have confidence in his providence, right? So I want to encourage you guys to do that, to think about your life. Think about it real thoroughly. Where has God been at work? Where am I supposed to be at work? You know? am, am I the one who's supposed to be God's fingerprints in someone else's story so that they can see God's goodness? Or am I supposed to look in my own life and see that? I think we need to do both of those, right? That's what it means to have confidence in providence. So we're going to give you two applications right now. So if you have your bulletin, I want you to pull it out. Or if you're using a smartphone to take notes, whatever you are, I want you to write down two things right now. I want you to write down two things. The first one is for how how you can be God's fingerprints in someone else's life. Is there someone that you know that has a need, that's struggling? Maybe they're going through grief or depression. Is there someone that you can help? And if you don't know how to help them off the top of your head, just pray about it. God will show you. Maybe it's a cup of coffee. Maybe it's a text. Maybe it's a a note of encouragement. Maybe it's inviting them to a meal. Maybe you're going to take them out to lunch right after this. How can you be God's fingerprints? Maybe you need to go sign up for WizKids to help a kid in need. Whatever that thing is, how could I be God's fingerprints? So just write down one thing, one person maybe. And then the second thing I want you to write down is where has God worked in your story? Let's think about it. This is what Naomi had to do and teach Ruth to do and in turn to teach us to do, to see God's fingerprints. Where is somewhere in your own story that you look back and say, wow, what a crazy, wild coincidence? Well, guess what? It wasn't coincidence. It was providence. So write that down. Where was that moment? And, and maybe that's something that you can talk about today at lunch with your spouse or with a friend or after church. Say, hey, this is the weirdest thing happened. Maybe even the fact that you're here this morning is that coincidence. You just happened to be here this morning and you needed to hear that word of encouragement. It wasn't coincidence. It wasn't. It was God's providence and we can have confidence in him Let's pray. Lord God, we look at the story of Naomi and Ruth, and I hope that we would learn from it, that we would see these women carrying so much baggage, so much burden, having their entire identity of struggle, of grief, of sadness, of sorrow, and you begin to bring them out. You prepare a table before them, literally in the presence of their enemies, Lord. You you bless them abundantly. You give them more than they need. And that's how you are. You are good and you are in control, Lord. You have providence. You are providence. And I pray that we would have confidence in that in our own lives. I pray that this week we would be your fingerprints in someone else's life. 
that they would begin to see your goodness and your love, that they would be sheltered under their wing, Lord God, that we would be the Boaz for someone else. Show us how we could do that this week. And also show us, God, how you already are working in our life, especially for the person this morning who's really struggling, going through a trial and grief, and it's hard. I pray that you'd reveal to them in an abundant way your fingerprints all over their life, and they would see that you have been generous and good to them, providing these chance scenarios that are anything but chance. Because, Lord God, we are your children. You love us. That you are working in all things for the good of those who love him. It's not random. It's not just turning out that way. Lord God, you are at work the whole time, and we are so grateful for that. We are thankful that we're your children, that you love us, that you've redeemed us, that you've called us your own, and because of that, we worship you. Amen. So would you please stand with me right now? We're going to praise God, and if you are here and you're in need of prayer for whatever the situation, I'm going to be in the back, our prayer team will be in the back, and we're going to be here to meet with you, and let's praise our God together.